0: Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for each one who's had a part in the service, whether we prayed with somebody, whether we've sung songs to your glory. Thank you, Lord. And Now, as we open up your word, guide us with the same Holy Spirit that guided people to be eyewitnesses of your majesty and to write down these words that we're going to look at here this morning. Guide us and direct us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I want you to imagine a scenario. And some of you don't have to imagine because you have gotten the jury summons from time to time. Some of you have, haven't you? And when you get that, what's the normal feeling you have? Is it, wow, I get to go to jury duty and watch that canned video they show every time? No? And then when you get into that that courtroom area and the judge is going through all the do's and don'ts and, and does anybody have a hardship and all of that, and you're thinking, I wish I had a hardship I could get out of this thing. You ever been there? Here locally in Shasta County? yeah, I remember, it seems like I I get these every once in a while. In fact, uh, they they seem to arrive at the time when I I don't really have time for them. And so I would call them on the phone and say, you know, I'm scheduled to be out of town that time. Okay, we'll defer you. So I want you to imagine a deferral that's about ready to take place. And this person's in the jury duty area, and there he is, happy, isn't he? (laughs) Not really. And he's not happy because something is in the back of his mind that he has to attend to. And yet he doesn't want to come out and say it's a hardship. And the judge is probing and wondering, okay, why is this guy uh, kind of rustling in his seat there back and forth? Seems a little nervous. And so he says, well, I've got an appointment out of town. And uh, the judge is like, okay, it must be very important. Uh, Mind telling us what it is? Well, you know, it's... uh, And he said, well, is it a vacation, the judge asks? Well, sort of. And you get down to it, and the guy finally blurts out, I have tickets to the Super Bowl. Now, you all know some people are looking at that tomorrow. And so the judge defers him for a month. And he excitedly leaves the courtroom for two reasons. Number one, he's not going to miss the Super Bowl. And number two, he's finally out of those, those recycled air rooms, and he's back to real life. And as I think of that experience that could potentially happen and the excitement that that guy had to get, not only get out of there, but to think ahead to some football experience of all things, some questions came to my mind. You know, sometimes we get more excited about sports or entertainment or some social gathering or some other form of, of something to focus on our gadgets and all of that. Isn't it interesting that sometimes we get more excited about things like that—that that we would rather miss a jury duty or anything in the world, but not that event or not that program or not well, you fill in the blank. And as I thought about this new year and I thought about all the hours that we spend on the media, and you can look at statistics as to see how many hours we spend on YouTube and Facebook, and you start adding them all together. I'm not saying you shouldn't spend time on the internet, but the question came to my mind. All of these things that we look at, and even watching 3ABN and Hope Channel can be a good thing, but what would happen if you watched it and listened to the radio, Christian radio instead of reading your own Bible? Couldn't it become a problem? You say, well, they're opening the Scriptures and they're sharing it with us on all of that, and and really, it could be a disservice to even hear a preacher preaching if you don't go and do and read for yourself. We can't spend a thoughtful hour focusing on the life of Christ here as far as one-on-one one, it, what it would look like between you and Christ. We can't do that here. This is a place to encourage that. But we get all of this excitement and all this, of this hype. But when we think about spending time in the Word of God, sometimes, I'm not saying all the time, but sometimes it can feel like it's not as exciting. I was coming across this quote a while back, and I've referred to it a few times here. It says, we would would be well if we would spend a thoughtful hour each day in contemplation of the life of Christ. You say, well, I don't have an hour to spend. Okay, then spend some time in contemplation of the life of Christ. And we talk about imagination. We don't like people using imagination. Well, this says imagination. We should take it point by point and let the imagination grasp each scene. Some of us, and I've been around people who are in the fantasy football leagues, they know all the stats, they know all the players, they got everything memorized, they know, and, and my dad has a photographic memory almost when it comes to football, especially that Oregon game where we lost, okay, and, and he can regurgitate that thing play by play all the way through to the first half, and then he describes the halftime, and he can, he can just pour it all out there, and That's wonderful because my dad also uses that memory for when he's trying to read the Bible. But I think to myself, we spend all of that time memorizing this data. Some of us have to spend the time to memorize because we don't have that photographic memory. So we spend all of this time focused on other things. And as we kicked off the new year, we were saying, how much time should we spend focusing on Christ instead? Especially the closing scenes. Play by play in his life, and especially the closing scenes when he's got the game in the bag, if you will, when he's got the victory over Satan. As we thus dwell upon his great sacrifice for us, our confidence in him will be more constant. Our love will be quick. And I always wondered, how could a church raise its loving relationship quotient? We do these surveys and assessing the health of a church and they got loving relationships really low. How could we ever raise that? We can't generate love. We have to go to the source to generate that. And she's saying that if we would go and we would focus on what Christ has done in his life, especially the closing scenes, we would have love being generated in our hearts. We would see that what somebody has done for us at a great price, then maybe I should do that for others. And we shall be more deeply imbued with his spirit. A lot of talk about the latter rain, revival and reformation but what about this i want to be imbued with the spirit i want to have not just the mercy drops i want to be filled with this holy spirit and she's saying we could do that by focusing on the life of christ and you say well that's shallow that's that's baby milk for christians no it's not i think we've gotten it reverse The people at Thessalonica and these other places, the baby milk was their factions and fighting and acting like children, but really the meat was of Christ. He said, eat my flesh and drink my blood. And he 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 was referring to his words. And so if we want to be imbued with his spirit, if we would be saved at last, and we all want to be saved, don't we? Hallelujah to that, right? We want to be saved at last. Then we must learn the lesson of penitence and humiliation, humbleness, at the foot of the cross. And I know we don't like pendulum swings and people are just talking about grace, grace, and cross, cross. Maybe we wouldn't have to talk about it so much if we would, if we would all, including myself, spend that time individually. We'd be more likely coming together to praise God for what He has done for us. And the victories we've had and the overcoming we've had in, in our Christian walks because we have looked to the One who did overcome. So if I want the latter rain, I've got to spend time at the cross. If I want to be somehow having more love in my heart, I've got to keep looking there. And I know from my background and my genogram and the generational sins that I especially have to be looking at the cross every day. But if I've fallen short and there's a day or so that goes by or weeks and I feel discouraged and I don't spend that time, should I just walk away like Judas and hang myself? No. We can actually look at the story of Peter, the one who did not get totally discouraged, the one who felt down but who got back up, and we can learn a few lessons. And we're going to go to the Gospel of Mark in a moment here. But Peter, the one who was there watching the miracles of Jesus, the one who was there hearing the words of Jesus, the one who even Satan spoke through and Jesus said, Get behind me, Satan. Yeah, I have to go to the cross. But yet the one who was there all along and being even willing to cut off the high priest servant's ear and yet he does not make it to the cross. Peter does not make it to the cross. You say, well, how do you know that? Pretty simple. You look at the list of the people who were at the cross. You've got John there, the female disciples, and a few onlookers, but the rest have been scattered, and Peter is not one of them who is there at the cross. He was there leading up to the cross, but he denies his Lord and doesn't behold the last scenes of his Savior's sacrifice for him. And yet, there's hope in Peter's story for us. Because if for some reason we haven't had that focus, we are going to learn from Peter that we can become eyewitnesses anew today. And so the Gospel of Mark is really Peter's account. You go talk to Dr. Tom Shepard, one of my professors, expert in Mark. He'll tell you as you look at the details of the different Gospels, more than likely, John Mark was the author or or the one who wrote down the events of Mark. But who was giving him the account? More likely, Peter, most people think. And so as you look at the Gospel of Mark and you wonder to yourself, well, how did he get some of that information? He wasn't even there at the cross. Well, some of it is based on an eyewitness account that was given to him. And so we're going to go to the book of Mark, and we're going to see the importance of being eyewitnesses. Even if we weren't there, we can still be an eyewitness to the cross. And so let's go over to the book of Mark. And if you want to open up the book of Mark and just stop and pause there in the first chapter, I want you to scan down in your own Bible, and you're going to see, if you look down through there in, your, in an English version of the Bible, King James or whatever version it is, you'll find a particular word immediately, okay? You're going to find that word appearing almost in every single chapter of this gospel. Either that word or in your old version, straight away, or, or something just all of a sudden happened, Right? Those two words occur almost in every single chapter of this gospel from the beginning down to the end, except for in a couple of places. One of them is in chapters 12 through 13. If you go down there and you start looking through chapters 12 and 13, you won't find that action-packedness in there. Immediately this happened, then this happened, and immediately, immediately, immediately. He slows down there in chapters 12 through 13 for some reason. And why is that? It's because it's leading up to the cross, the very place where he's going to deny Christ before he even sees it. Passover is included there in chapters 12 through 13. Words of judgment upon Israel are, are contained there in chapters 12 through 13. And the events leading up to the crucifixion, which Peter misses, are right there. And so you have this immediately text, or word going all the way up to there, and then not there, and you say okay maybe we should slow down there for a little bit or figure out why it picks up right after that and focus there so we're going to go over to mark and we're going to find as you go from chapters 12 and 13 that it's like it picks up speed immediately and it goes makes a v-line for the cross so let's go over to your bible and your hand there and you look at chapter 12 and 13 and then you continue on from there some of you have been reading the Staying Connected devotional guide, and you're a little bit further ahead than this. We've had a couple of weeks off, and I'm just picking up where we left off. So you go to chapter 13, you find Jesus predicting the destruction of the Temple of Jerusalem, the signs of the end. Okay. It's interesting, It slows The word immediately is not in there. It's slowing down and having us remember some words of Christ right before his crucifixion. And then you get to chapter 14, verse 1. After two days, it was the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And the chief priests and the scribes sought how they might take him by trickery, put him to death. But they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar of the people. So you continue on down through there, and you'll find the things leading up to another place where the text slows down. I think if we look carefully at these words that are jotted down by John Mark on behalf of Peter, we would find ourselves in the story. It could, I think if we looked at the story carefully, and I'm going to invite you to go home and to spend the time reading through those chapters, especially after chapter 13, 14, 15 on up. Spend some time there. Picture yourself in the story. And I'm going to put you in there as Peter and myself in there as Peter for the sake of our sermon time here this morning. Because Peter, unfortunately, doesn't make it to the cross. He denies Christ. He has to rely on an eyewitness, more than likely a friend to tell him what happened, probably John. He has to imagine what it would be like at the cross because he had denied the Lord three times and had to flee in shame. He wept leaving the area. Some people think maybe he got back and looked at the cross or something. Who knows? We're not told in the Bible that. And so he has to trust that whatever is told him occurred the way that it was described to him by an eyewitness. the same way we do. And then he has to allow Jesus to share with him later on the true meaning of the things that he walked away from. You look in Acts chapter 1, and he has to continue explaining to Peter and the rest of them that, no, I'm not setting up my kingdom here in this world. He spends all of that time with him. And some questions come to my mind Have I at any time denied Christ by refusing to fully accept the value of the cross? Some people stop at the cross and they have a dead Savior. We don't want to do that, but we want to value it, don't we? It is of extreme value what happened there on the cross. It's called an atonement that took place. It's the payment that allows us to go free from the kingdom of darkness of the Prince of Death himself. And so I ask myself that question, am I in any way not valuing the cross or fully accepting it as much as I should? And then I ask myself, have I at some time refused to look at the cross and instead I've spent time all over the place looking at other topics of Scripture but really I haven't spent much time there? And then it dawns on me. There Peter is, he would have been an eyewitness of the cross if he had been willing to accept Jesus as a crucified Savior. He refused to accept Jesus as a crucified Savior. He said no and he began rebuking Jesus because of that. And Jesus recognized Satan was speaking through him. And so there's some implications for us as Seventh-day Adventists as we look at the Gospel of Mark. Ellen White refers to the cross, Calvary. And you can add them all together. It's over 12,000 times. But Calvary, at least 6,000 times. If you add that together with the idea of cross around the hill, you get about 6,000 times with Calvary and this cross on a hill that we're talking about here. And she says that of all professed Christians that we as Seventh-day Adventists should be foremost in lifting up Christ before the world. We shouldn't be the tail on this. We should be at the forefront of this. The proclamation of the third angel message calls for the presentation of the Sabbath truth. That's true. This truth with others included in the message is to be proclaimed, but the great center of attraction, Christ Jesus, must not be left out how can you preach the Sabbath or share the Sabbath without linking it to the one who gives you the spiritual rest from your sins? I guess you could, but then you'd be a Jew rather than a Christian. And I guess I could, but I want to somehow link him to It, it is that the cross of Christ that mercy and truth meet Righteousness and peace kiss each other. The sinner must be led to look to Calvary. She says this idea over and over again. Get him to look to the cross. Get him to look to Calvary. With the simple faith of a little child, he must trust in the merits of the Savior. My big brother has done it all. My father has made a way. Is it that simple? Accepting his righteousness, believing in his mercy. And so what happens if we don't look to that? What ends up happening is we begin to be spiritually thirsty. And we ourselves spiritually begin to go through a drought. Here we are in another drought year, people were predicting. But I'm predicting that as as members of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, the greatest need we have is to to quench the spiritual drought that has taken place because of either a spiritual, weird twisted emphasis on the cross that you can do anything you want or an emphasis on just the opposite where we're looking to our own merits and our own righteousness interesting quotation in the testimonies volume five there are many flippant talkers of bible truth whose souls are as barren of the spirit of god as were the hills of goboa of dew and rain another place she says it's the grace of god that we're not having but what we need is men who are thoroughly converted themselves and can teach others how to give their hearts to God. The power of godliness has almost ceased to be in our churches. And why is this? The Lord is still waiting to be gracious. He's wanting to pour out and lavish His graciousness on us. This has been written years ago about about our church. He has not closed the windows of heaven. We have separated ourselves from Him. We need to fix the eye of faith upon the cross and believe that Jesus is our strength, our salvation. So here I am. I'm just as guilty as Peter. Because for some reason, there were those number of years where I felt like there were other topics, other things to focus on that were more important than Christ. That makes me anti-Christ. I put something in place of Christ. And in the Greek, putting something in place of Christ means you substituted it, and therefore, it's antichrist. The word anti means in place of. And so a lack of focus on Christ caused a severe spiritual drought in my walk with the Lord years ago, especially when I was in my ministerial training days. I was hypercritical of others, and she says in places that I was Satan's right-hand helper then. I was always concerned with heresy coming into the church, and yeah, you should be concerned with heresy coming into the church, especially if it preaches another gospel. But I was concerned with somehow not understanding the Bible enough, the facts, that somehow I'd be deceived. I was more concerned with that than understanding who Christ was and, and, and watching out for people taking me away from Him. I found little or no value in Bible reading for a season, It just seemed like, okay, i got to read through some chapters, and let's get through it. And maybe this is spiritual drought or spiritual depression, I'm not sure. I was always ready for another end time theory rather than looking to the one who would lead me through the end of time. So how could a pastor in training be like this? I didn't start that way. I started in a little church, and in that little church, they said to me, after I was baptized, they said, you know, now you're united with Jesus, would you like to unite with his church and be a part of his church? And they loved me into that church. They literally did. They prayed for me when I was in the jail. They prayed for me when I got out of the jail. They saw me going back and forth like a revolving door. And they continued to extend graciousness to me. That's how I started out. But then I got years later and it began to begin to be transformed not by Christ and the renewing of my mind, but instead I had t- stuck other topics in my mind. And a lot of us end up reading the newspaper more than we, for current events and how it fulfills prophecy than we do spend reading the The life of Christ. And it's easy to discard a faith like that. It's easy to walk away from it. That's why we have, for every Seventh day Adventist in the church in North America, we have two out of the church, two that used to be members. And I'm not saying we shouldn't know the prophecies. Peter says, almost like a combination of both, we should be aware of the prophecies, and but we should also make sure that we realize that we are eyewitnesses. And I found myself prone to pendulum swings. You know, uh, somebody would bring in a, uh, a book, a song book that wasn't a hymnal, and by the way, the hymnal has been criticized for years, guys. It, it's not perfect either. And they would bring in a song, or even one time I remember... Somebody, the dear chorister, brought in a song from the hymnal and it was so radically new to the minds of the congregation that they thought that he was somehow introducing a praise chorus of some kind or celebration. That's where I was at. I was the kind of person that would be watching out for all of that. And I found myself becoming two different people. Two different people. The one with the suit on and then I would go out and leave the church and I was a different person don't you hate that Jesus said in the old testament who has sent you I am has sent you the one who's the same wherever he goes and yet we created a machinery that produced two-faced people two different people in one I would think that's a psychological condition almost And then I got to the point where anything anybody said to me was taken as personal criticism. I mean, anything. That's a good sermon, Pastor, and and I never thought of that like that before. And I, I was just studying in this place over there, and I took it to mean that, oh, I should have included that. How could you get so sensitive that you take a compliment that someone says something good about what has been shared through you? And you think that somehow they're pointing out a deficiency when they're just saying, it, it, it agrees with what I've studied in my heart. Reminds me of uh, the one who was sitting there and watching a game with his friend. And there they are, watching the game. And they kept getting in this huddle. And the friend noticed that the guy beside him, the one that he'd always been to these games before with, just kept fidgeting in his seat and, and, and just almost getting white-knuckled angry. And it happened every time they huddled together. Every time the huddle took place, here's this gentleman over there just holding on to his seat, just feet red in the face, angry. And finally he stood up at one of their huddles because he, he thought maybe one of them was looking at him and he shouted out, Quit talking about me! That never happens in the church, does it? We think everything that everybody's saying is about us. Are we really that sensitive? Or have we developed that type of hypersensitivity to the point where we cannot allow somebody to express something that's different than us? We're so suspicious. So if I was to go through my pastoral psychology book and diagnose this, I would diagnose myself as spiritually depressed. Um, I would diagnose myself as paranoid. paranoid. I would go through all the the thinking errors and stuff and I would begin diagnosing all the thinking errors I had and what was the cause of it? I didn't realize my eternal value. Once you realize your eternal value and what price has been paid for you, then I'm telling you, a lot of these things don't even matter anymore. Not that truth doesn't matter, but what doesn't matter is you are connected with God and what people say about you, yeah, it can be hurtful and you need to confront them in a Christian way at times, but does it bother me anymore? And so, what was the cure for my spiritual drought? I became an eyewitness of the cross that was my cure for the spiritual drought. And I'll be honest to tell you, the water restrictions that I placed on my own heart were not lifted until about three years ago. There was plenty of water, but I was spiritually dry because of the lack of wanting to go to it. How could somebody be a pastor in the Seventh-day Adventist Church for five years, gone through ten years of training, and be spiritually thirsty until about two or three years ago? You ask yourself the same question. How could we be coming to church from week after week, hearing maybe even somebody who's pointing you to the Bible, but you leave here thirsty? So I'm not preaching at you this morning. I'm, I, I was in the study this week saying, Lord, this has happened to me. Something's happened, happened to me. And it wasn't the church's fault. It's just my own focus. I should have been. I can't blame the church for this. But it was something that was my cause. I mean, when there's water sitting there and you don't go to drink it, I mean, whose fault is it really? And then the church is known as the place that says, drink the water of life freely. This should be the place where we're pouring it out on each other. And so I became an eyewitness of the cross. And because of that, instead of putting other teachings in place of Christ I began to look at our 28 fundamentals and say how does this point me to Jesus how does this point me and I saw him everywhere in those beliefs and I saw him in the book of Revelation every single chapter of Revelation and I saw him in the book of Daniel and there it's a little bit kind of you have to look for the mystery a little more but there he is and then being highly critical of others I began to be more critical of myself looking in my own mirror rather than looking in the mirror and turning the mirror on somebody else And then instead of being concerned with all the heresy coming into the church, it's pretty simple to deal with heresy these days in my part. If you come at me with a new teaching, I'll just ask you one question. What does it have to do with Jesus? Do you feel like it has somehow gone in line with what his words are and his teachings are? Because Jesus is the one who says, watch out for these signs of the times. But he also says, let this idea of keeping our hearts from waxing cold. And he tells us how to deal with it. He says, watch and pray. So if somebody's looking at some weird conspiracy theory and brings it to me, I will notice immediately the fear that's guiding them. And I would just ask the question, you know, is, that, is that something you want to have continue on? It seems like you're very fearful. How does that help you serve God and, and unite with Christ more faithfully? If it doesn't, it's pretty clear it's an antichrist teaching. What about finding little more value in the Bible reading? Well, I began to find Jesus everywhere in the Bible. Everywhere. I could take that Bible reading plan out there that you have that goes from Genesis to Revelation, and I can find him every, almost in every single chapter. Just the other day, I was over there in Leviticus and Numbers, moving on, and I, there I did. There, it mentioned the Levites and how they would be set aside as holy in place of the firstborn son, and it linked it back to the Passover. And I said, isn't that what Jesus did? Clearly, that's what Jesus did. He was set aside as holy in the place of us. And then I was always ready for another end-time theory. Well, instead of that, you know what, guys? Theories are theories. And some of them are cunningly devised fables. Especially when they don't come true. And how is your faith after something doesn't come true that you truly held dearly that you thought was going to happen? And instead of being prone to pendulum swings, I became one person. I'm faulty. Yeah, but I'm the same faulty person here as I am there at home. You ask my wife, you know? Especially when I used to, used, to, used to make mistakes in my sermon and all of that. How, do I, how did I take that? You know, at first, I, when I was back in those stages, I didn't take it very well. But now it's like, yeah. Yeah, I did use the word um, um, um a couple times. So I began to be one person. You know what also happened? Instead of being super cons- somehow sensitive to someone talking about me, and I thought the huddle was all about me. No, it had nothing to do with me. I don't care what people are huddling around about. If you're knifing me in the back, the Lord's going to deal with you. I mean, I don't have to deal with it anymore. And that takes pretty tough skin to be nailed to the cross. Pretty tough person to be nailed to the cross. And surely then, we should be more like Christ then. And if you have a grievance with somebody, you follow Matthew 18, you work it out. I'm not saying you shouldn't do that, but not everything should bother us like it used to. And so, there's hope for us. Look at here in Matthew, Mark 16. The next place the story slows down, doesn't use those Greek words immediately or straightway is at the resurrection, because there Peter is. He misses the cross. He goes, weeps, denies his Lord. I've never quite done that publicly, but I see myself in the story, and the hope for me comes here at the resurrection, because now he slows the story down again, and here it is, not just before the cross, But right after the cross, when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Salome, had bought sweet spices so they might come and anoint Jesus. And very early in the morning, the first day of the week, they came upon the tomb, the sun having risen. And they said among themselves, who will roll away the stone from the door of the tomb for us? We're Always worried about the little details. Really, if God wants that stone rolled away, it's going to roll away. And looking up, they saw the stone had been rolled back for it was very great. Imagine that. There it is. That obstacle between you and seeing Jesus. In their case, it was seeing him in sadness, but it's removed. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right, clothed in a long white garment. They were frightened. And he said to them, do not be frightened. Do you notice that? Is God's kingdom all about the fear and everything else, the dreading of the world? No, they engage this world. They go out and they fight the spiritual fights and the battles. They're not afraid of this world. Do not be frightened. You seek Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. He's risen. He's not here. Behold the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter. There is always hope for us. If for some reason we are going through a spiritual drought or some reason we haven't spent the time focusing on him like we should, then take this as an encouragement. There's Peter. He's wept. He's ran away. And eventually he goes back to fishing. But he's sending a messenger. He's telling these people, go tell the disciples and peter god knows exactly what we're going through and he'll send the encouragement we need to point us in the right direction go there before you into galilee there you will see him as he said to you refers right back to the words of jesus and they went out quickly and fled from the tomb for they trembled and were amazed neither did they say anything to anyone for they were afraid they went forth and they got back to the disciples some use the word amazed there but these people become witnesses and they go back and they encourage Peter. And so, if you're FBI students are still paying attention to my long sermon, Mark 16, 9 through 13 is your key text. Mark 16, verses 9 through 13. So he appeared first to Mary Magdalene. I heard the whisper that you got it, right? She went and told those who had been with him as they mourned and wept. So they're still in that state of mind. And when they had heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they did not believe. Ah, he even sends physical witnesses and they still don't believe. After that, he appeared in another form to two of them as they walked and went into the country. And they went and told it to the rest, But they did not believe them either. Can you imagine this? I mean, here's the creator of the universe who's died on the cross, who's resurrected, who's gone through all that agony for them, and now he's appearing to them, and they don't even want to believe it. He's appearing to them, and they don't even want to believe it. He's appearing to us. Do we want to believe it? seen by her and by them and they did not believe it eventually they do that's that's a good thing god keeps going back to them but i want to see and i want to believe and when somebody comes and talks to me about christ i want to listen and hear their experience and they share something about him from the word of god i want to be able to say yeah i hear that i see that and, and let's look at it and you know what that does What does becoming an eyewitness do? What if we all became eyewitnesses of the cross and of his resurrection? It would do something to our church and our homes. Christ is a uniting link in the golden chain which binds believers together in Christ. It would bind us together, hold us together. There must be no separating in this great testing time. I've been working on this sermon for I don't know how many months Uh, I had this topic in my mind last year and as I'm looking at this, I'm thinking to myself, I needed this especially right now. The people of God are fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, which all point to Jesus. Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone in whom all the building fitly framed together groweth unto a holy temple in the Lord. The children of God constitute one united whole in Christ who presents his cross as the center of attraction. All who believe are one in him. You don't like, I mean, if you don't like the word oneness, I'm sorry, it's going to keep coming out because I keep finding it in these texts. If we were to unite together and spend that time with Christ, it would create united witnesses, a united body, a oneness, not a false system. And so he's the chain that links us all together. Each believer, as they're looking to Jesus themselves, it links them to another believer, and, links them, and that believer is linked to Christ. and links them, He's the link that holds us together. Try to do it any other way, it will not succeed. But the Bible is saying as we go to Jesus and we're linked up to him, then we become eyewitnesses, and there's something that eyewitnesses do. There was a case that was on the TV and it was mentioning this eyewitness account and, and there he is bearing testimony, right? Everybody knows the eye, what the eyewitness does. The eyewitness tells the story. Afterward, he appeared to the eleven and he reproached their unbelief and hardness of heart because they did not believe those who had seen him after he had risen. So he rebukes them for not accepting those eyewitnesses that came to them. And then he tells them, he doesn't leave them there like that, he says, now you go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to all creation. They become the eyewitnesses. Yeah, he rebukes them and tells them, spiritually, you needed me. Spiritually, you didn't see me. But now that you do, go into all the world. And so the eyewitnesses behold, they see him, which means you've got to spend time looking at him, they are changed by that experience and then they go and share what they have seen. So we're like Peter, are we not? We've at times denied Christ. We had to rely on other eyewitness accounts to tell us what happened at the cross. Dear Ellen White, she, 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 she would hate to be our crutch all the time. She's like, go to the Bible. We have to imagine what it was like then to have been there because we weren't there. We have to trust that it occurred the way it was described to us. And then we have to allow Jesus to share with us the true meaning of the cross after we become eyewitnesses. Because someday soon, we weren't there at the cross and we weren't there at the resurrection, but someday soon, we're going to be there and we're going to say, yes, I believe He was crucified. I believe He was risen. But I believe He's coming again. And there He is in the clouds. And we see Him. And all of us who are saved at last, have to begin first here at the cross, then believe in his, that He's risen. He's not the dead Savior. He can give us victory in our lives. And then we look forward to the coming of the Savior. We will be eyewitnesses. So I think it's time to get excited about Him. That's why that staying connected devotional guide was there. And some have asked me, well, I've been through it already. Like, okay, if you rush through that already by now, I'm okay with that. But that Staying Connected devotional guide was meant to be a daily devotional for you. For me, I spend my time in the morning and throughout the day with my five chapters that the Old Testament I'm in right now. But in the evening, before I go to bed, I take out that little study guide, that Staying Connected study guide, and I go through and I spend that time focusing on Him. Even when I was out late in Shingletown, I went through what I had memorized in the, in the Gospel chapter that I had been supposed to be reading for that day. Even in a long day, you can do it. And so I'm hoping that that will lead us in our first quarter of 2015 to to stay focused on Him, to stay connected with Him. You may need to take that study guide and review it throughout the year. I have used it when I have been spiritually feeling like I'm going into a drought. And there's that fountain right there again. Takes you through Gospels, takes you through the steps of Christ and desire of ages, and then you wind it back in the Old Testament looking for Jesus. So you wonder why I might be harping on that. It's because I think if we are looking at Jesus, we get excited about that, and we're excited to be around each other then, because we've all been with Jesus. Some of us are being revived through this process, myself included, and that's 10 days of prayer. They took on new meaning because I had been focusing on Christ, and now those 10 days of prayer said, now I'm going to abide in Christ. It was a powerful way to start the new year. You almost want to repeat that over and over again. But I think the power of it was that we were looking at really the attributes of Christ, the fruits of the Spirit, or really remind me of Jesus. Every one of them does. Love, joy, gentleness, patience, self-control. You go through the whole list. It's all about Him. And some of you shared with me some of your thoughts and you were saying, wow, this is amazing. I enjoy this so much. I'm going to highlight one of the responses I received. It was a poem called Inviting in Christ. Oh, the joy that fills my heart. He has given me a new start. We can have that every day. Abiding in Christ, I'm living without fear and strife. He has taken control of my life. That's a good feeling. Abiding in Christ. Now my trust is completely in Him, for only with Him can I win. He is the one who gives us the power to be victorious and overcome. Abiding in Christ, and He is abiding in me now and forever and for eternity. On our own dear saints here, Joyce wrote that. It hit me hard when I read it. I was like, I hope we all had that. Especially through those 10 days of prayer, but especially as we go each day of this year. Because I was reading through a vision and it described how the Advent people don't neglect the midnight cry message. We know the prophecies are true. But they continually look forward to somebody that's Jesus until He comes. And so I'm just here to encourage you to do the same. You may have to begin at that old rugged cross. I don't think you've got to stay there all the time, but you should spend some time there. So should I. Start by looking at the old rugged cross and then realizing He's risen and He's coming again. And all of that adds together is you're an eyewitness of the cross. We are all eyewitnesses to the cross. I want to invite Don to come and to play this song for us called The Old Rugged Cross. My little boy, it was their theme song at camp meeting at Primary. So he's got it memorized almost. And he loves it, so I put it on there for him. On a hill far away stood this old rugged cross, the emblem of suffering and shame. And I love that old cross where the dearest and best for a world of lost sinners was slain. So I'll cherish the old rugged cross till my trophies at last I lay down. I will cling to the old rugged cross and exchange it someday for a crown. If you'd like to stand and sing this with me, please do. thankful for the old rugged cross we want to spend time focusing on it each day be the theme and the foundation of everything else we learn and teach from your word and so jesus help us to set aside that time we know that you are king of the universe you set aside so much for us just to look and to be thankful for what you've done for us is really small in the light of eternity So Lord, I place my heart before You. I trust that You can not only forgive and cleanse me of times when I haven't focused on You like I should have, but You can also guide me with a good foot forward, a good step forward in spending that time with You, especially here as we wrap up the first month of the new year. Help me to stay focused on You until You come. Guide us all to stay connected. May Your peace be upon us. In Jesus' name, amen.